Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and we're here with a Slate spoiler special on The Dark Knight, uh, the new Christopher Nolan movie that may be the most, the uber superhero movie of this very superheroic summer. I'm here with Dan Coyce, editor of the Culture Vulture blog on NewYorkMagazine.com. Hello. Hey. And uh, Dan, um, we recently saw The Dark Knight, both very impressed by the movie. Would you agree with that? I would definitely agree with that, yes. I'll send nearly every other critic on the face of the earth, yes. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to have some probably some very, very good reviews this coming week. So do you want to start off by summarizing the story? Sure. I'd love to. Since I always bounce that one to you. It's the scut work of the spoiler. Um, so yes, as you describe it as the new Christopher Nolan movie, or as 99.9% of America will think of it, the Batman movie, it stars Christian oh, Bale. Oh, I didn't mention Batman yet? Oh, I Batman, believe... Batman. That's the branding that should have been <laughs> right up Batman's name did not come up. We can now get our paychecks from DC Comics. Um, it's the new Batman movie starring Christian Bale as Batman. And in this movie, he faces off against uh, two antagonists eventually. The first and primary and most important one, and the one that everyone will be talking about, is the Joker, played by Heath Ledger. Um, and the second is uh, Two-Face, who is a criminal who pops up halfway through um, and is played by Aaron Eckhart. But the main character in this, I mean, the main force of nature in this movie is the Joker. And, and I think uh, Heath Ledger's performance would be the one that everyone was talking about, whether he had died last winter or not. Batman faces off against the Joker, who exists in this world of Gotham City as more or less a pure malevolent force of chaos. Um, and Batman- Who, it's interesting, is not given any origin or, or background story at all. No, He's just, no. He just sort of pops onto the scene. And Christopher Nolan has described him in interviews as serving the same function in this movie as the shark serves in Jaws. You're not interested in the shark's backstory. You just want to see it in action. And he is almost, I mean, he's he is almost sort of pure cunning, horrible predator in this movie, except way crazier than the shark in Jaws, and also much funnier. But if you want to boil down the movie very simply, it's Batman representing the forces of reason against the Joker representing the forces of chaos, and hilarity ensues. <laughs> All right, so we'll get to maybe some of the some of the plot twists a little bit later so we can spoil some stuff, like the several surprising things that happened toward the end. Well, I want to talk about this. I don't know if you were as struck by this as I was, but I was amazed at how closely this movie hewed to all kinds of 9-11 allegories and was basically a movie about America, which I guess you could say every superhero movie is, and certainly in some ways Iron Man had some things to say about war and the American way of waging it and so forth. But, but usually the things that superhero movies have to say about America are a lot brighter and funner than the things that The Dark Knight has to say about America. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even though Iron Man might have some sort of wry observations about, you know, American military might and so forth, in the end, it is an affirmation of American ingenuity and military right. might, and it's sort of a celebration of a great weapons designer who becomes a superhero. Although, to be sure, you know, he's suddenly using his weapons for right, which, of course, in that right. movie, it's very clear what the right is. Now, what's pretty amazing about The Dark Knight is, is how incredibly bleak and dark the movie is about actually being able to find out whether you're fighting on the side of right or not. Well, Batman spends really, uh, I would say, probably the first three quarters of the movie completely failing to understand the Joker at all. He says at one point to Alfred, his butler, who's played by Michael Caine, he says, as they're trying to track the Joker down, criminals are simple, implying that it's not hard to figure out what a guy like the Joker might want and, and how one might catch him. But instead, Batman, who's always sort of been the consummate detective, finds himself constantly heading down the wrong alleys, getting himself thrown into traps that the Joker has set for him. And the Joker is always two or three or four steps ahead of him. And as you say, there's a pretty potent allegory there for sort of the, the technological detective or the technologically superior 
force of good facing off against an evil that he that he just isn't even equipped to understand or comprehend. The Joker's actually even called a terrorist at one point during yeah. the movie, isn't he, by a news commentator or something like that? It's always the news commentators that right. deliver the sort of direct exposition. Although, although Senator Patrick Leahy also refers to him as a thug in one memorable party scene. <laughs> He is, there's a party scene in which Patrick Leahy plays one of the guests, and as the Joker comes really? in, yes, as, I didn't catch that. As the Joker comes in and attacks, he's the uh, he's the elderly gentleman who says, "We don't bow to thugs." I remember that guy. I just yep. didn't know it was it's Patrick Leahy. That's fantastic. Spoiler: It's Patrick Leahy. <laughs> we can leave now. Yeah, you you were saying something interesting just before we started taping about how how Christian Bale's Batman is this interestingly powerless superhero and sort of the only superhero who's more or less a MacGuffin in the movies. He is. I mean, he's completely marginalized in in this movie. I mean, aside from from being the maybe the fifth most interesting character in the movie, he also, from a pure plot standpoint, is is forever wrong and almost unnecessary to the movie. The movie exists so that well, he needs to exist in order to be wrong. Right, but but he exists mostly so that. So that the Joker has someone to sort of play his tricks on. And it's the Joker who drives the action. It's the Joker's decisions and plans and plots such as they are that that drive the narrative. And Batman, like the audience, is forever three steps behind. And most superhero movies were, were meant to wow at sort of the uncanny intuition and understanding of the superhero. And we're, we as the audience are meant to be a couple steps behind him. Instead, we frequently know more than Batman does in this movie. We frequently know that whatever Batman is trying to do now, he's going to totally blow it. And but you would you would agree that that's that's one of the strengths of the movie. It's not as if Christian Bale needs to sort of amp up his performance or no, his no, character no. needs to be written to be less passive or something like that. No, not at all. I mean, it, it is definitely what makes the movie fairly unique in the world of superhero movies is this very very complicated and dark sense of an extremely dangerous world and how ill-equipped even even superheroes are to deal with it. Do you want, as long as we're spoiling here, do you want to talk about uh, the ending? And, and sure. I mean, in terms of what you were talking about, the sunny superhero resolution, the idea that a political allegory in a superhero movie is fine as long as, you know, every, as good wins out in the right, end. Right, as long as it ends with Iron Man and his super weapons beating whoever, beating Jeff Bridges and his super weapons. Right. Uh, instead, in this one, this movie ends uh, about as far away from a sort of a triumphant climax as you can imagine. It ends with Batman on the run. It ends with Batman being pursued by police because he has taken the rap for several murders committed by Harvey Dent, uh, Gotham City's district attorney, who's played by Aaron Eckhart, uh, who later turns into the villain Two-Face. Harvey Dent at the end of the movie is killed while holding Commissioner Gordon's family hostage. And in order to basically cover up the evil that Harvey Dent has done and give the city of Gotham a martyr to believe in, Batman takes the rap for those killings. And the last we see of him is him riding away, pursued fruitlessly by police shooting guns. Right. So he'll be a fugitive in the yeah. next Batman movie, presuming there is one. Another very dark thing that we can spoil is the fact that the uh, the heroine, Rachel Dawes, the love interest of both uh, Harvey Dent and, and Batman, they're sort of having a competition for it throughout the movie. And she's the DA or something? She's an assistant district attorney in Gotham City until later in the movie when she becomes little pieces of Maggie Gyllenhaal. <laughs> right. Well, what happens to her? She basically gets gets blown up in a sadistic scene, is sort of a, a suspense scene. You don't know whether she or, or the future Two-Face are going to be blown up. Right. And, Harvey, and Dent and, Harvey Dent and Rachel Dawes are put in separate warehouses across the city from each other, and the Joker tells Batman that he has enough time to get to one of them but not the other. And um, he chooses Harvey Dent because he thinks the city needs Harvey Dent 
and he thinks that maybe Commissioner Gordon can save Rachel, uh, but they he doesn't. And so Rachel once again, yeah, up. he misjudges, and and it's really hard to believe after that as a as a viewer for the next twenty minutes or so of the movie that she's actually dead because right. that's not the kind of thing that happens in such movies. Surely she's going to have been you know secreted away at the last minute somewhere and pop up, but she doesn't, and I presume that she's out of the franchise. She's now completely for good. toast. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to um, to talk a little bit about the performances before we wrap up, because obviously everyone's going to be talking about Heath Ledger's performances as the Joker in this, um, because both because of his early very sad death and because it is a pretty incredible performance. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, as I said, and people would be talking about this. This would be the takeaway performance from this movie, whether he had died or not. It's the kind of performance that that makes you understand that a guy who you'd previously thought was a good actor is in fact like a really fantastic actor. I guess Brokeback Mountain had somewhat already done that for me with Heath Ledger, but I still might not have thought he had something this this crazy. And do you want to talk about some of the details and mannerisms? I mean, I was trying to think of who to compare, what the voice sounds like, and you know, what's some of the texture of this performance that makes it so remarkable. And there's almost moments that he reminds me of Jack Benny. I mean, it's it's that funny of a performance, <laughs> and it sort of has that very nasal mannered. I don't know how to describe it, but a kind of distant style where everything he says. Seems Seems to be highly stylized in some way. And, I mean, He's it, not playing him as gay. I don't think that, that no. Ledger wants us to think that the Joker is gay. But Jack Benny has sometimes a little bit of gender ambiguity in his extreme stylization. Right. I mean, probably he, people don't even know what Jack Benny sounds like anymore. They're listening to the YouTube people. I, to me, he reminded me almost of like I mean, the, the obviously the image of the clown has always sort of been the standard image of Joker, the character, but he reminded me almost of like an old style Commedia dell'arte clown, like so almost stylized and dancey at times. He's very graceful. There, There's this move that he does in which he um, he plunges a pencil lead down into a table oh, and then says, I'm going to make this pencil disappear in one, two, three, and just as a bad guy attacks him, he kills the guy with the pencil in one like incredibly balletic movement. Presumably impaling him through the eyeball. Impaling him through the oh, eyeball. Yeah, I mean, I, I was maybe going to not say that out loud. <laughs> well, you never actually podcast. see what happens to the guy's head. But it happens really Something fast. involving the pencil that kills him. So. Yes, uh, but I mean, the, the whole performance is physically like really fascinating. Vocally, as you say, it's completely sort of outlandish and, and weird. And the way they have outfitted him and, and the complete lack of backstory and the complete enigma that Christopher Nolan makes him makes it just a, like a really signature performance and one that people will really be talking about. And, and what's funny is that it's it's a signature performance in a movie that is actually filled with a lot of really great performances. And you and I were also talking about Aaron Eckert, who plays Harvey Dent, in the kind of performance that would be getting Aaron Eckert, you know, covers on magazines. <laughs> if he had only died. If, if only he had died last year. Uh, well, that's not true. If only Heath Ledger had not been in this movie, honestly. Because yeah, no, no. I mean, yeah. no question that, that Ledger's performance, I think, is a little bit stranger and, yeah, a little bit and splashier, more out there. But at the same time... But Eckhart's wonderfully he's, cast in he's, he's really cast. He's really well cast, and he's really, really good. And he shows a side of him that he's shown in, in the Neil Butte movies that he started in, which is the side of sort of corruption underneath almost physical corruption and, and intellectual and emotional corruption underneath a very blocky, steadfast exterior. Of course, this being a big Hollywood movie, they make that metaphor completely literal and burn half his face off. But he's so 
very intense and strong and really, really good in this role. That when it's I think the about kind it, of performance I didn't think he had it. It's, it's actually quite similar to the role he had in in Brian De Palma's Black Dahlia last year or the year before. But that was such a horrible movie that you know nobody remembers his performance from that. Once again, though, he was sort of a good cop who who goes corrupt, and mm-hmm. it captured that quality that Aaron Eckhart has of simultaneously being very handsome and sort of matinee idol in his looks, but having something very sort of rotten and evil just lurking underneath. Which is why when he's cast as a straight romantic lead, like in Possession, he's completely unbelievable. And, right, you, you keep know, you waiting. Sort of you can almost just feel him, you know, sort of tainting the heroine right. as he's taking her into right. his arms. Um, and, I mean, the movie is full of other really strong performances. Even even Morgan Freeman does not completely just act like Morgan Freeman. But Michael Caine is very good as Alfred. Maggie Gyllenhaal, before she's blown up, is actually actually makes a, a surprisingly convincing district attorney. I, I cannot think of that many Hollywood actresses who have the sort of authority to pull off a role like that only because Hollywood rewards a lack of authority in so many of its actresses. But she pulls that off very well. And uh, and even some of the I mean even some of the minor characters and minor parts, right down to Gary Oldman, who gets for once in his life to play a decent guy and does it really well. I mean, there's nothing hammy about Commissioner Gordon at all, but Gary Oldman is just really, really good. He blends so well into the role, I didn't actually get it was Gary Oldman at first, because yeah. if he's not hamming it up, you, it's hard to recognize right. old, old Gary. Where is the Gary we know and love? Is there anything you didn't like about this movie? I found it at times a little bit too long. And I mean, maybe I just I have less of a tolerance for action sequences than some fanboys. But there was a lot of, you know, zooming here and there on super vehicles. Although I did love the, the truck with the uh, the clown painted on the side. Yes, that once said laughter is the best medicine, but an S has been added to it. So it now says slaughter is the best medicine. <laughs> That's a great gag. Uh, I, honestly, there really wasn't that much I didn't like about this movie. I mean... I guess that maybe there were too many things exploding, but I like it when things explode. So I didn't really have a problem with that. I mean, it's really, it really is, it is a dark and dense and in some ways sort of difficult superhero movie. I mean, that aside, it's still going to make $400 million, but it, but it's just, it's really is the kind of movie that to me suggests that anyone else who makes superhero movies is probably not going to do as well as this. I mean, it does seem like sort of the Niplus Ultra of a certain kind of dark and intense crime-driven superhero movie. I think it probably will be at least critically received as the greatest one of this summer, but it's not the last. Aren't there still more to roll out? No, this is this is the last. We have reached the end of the summer of superheroes. We had Hancock, we had Hellboy, we had The Hulk, and we had Iron Man, and now it all winds up with The Dark Knight. I mean, I guess the the stoner superheroes of Pineapple Express might beg to differ, but... So we have to wait till next summer when they'll start digging up Hagar the Horrible or God <laughs> right. knows who. Uh, the, the hot rumor today, of course, is Keanu Reeves to play Plastic Man in a superhero movie. Will it actually hopen, happen? Certainly not, but God, would it be hilarious. The one actor with the least expressive face in Hollywood right. gets to be Plastic he Man. He finally gets to stretch. All right, well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me for the movie and for this spoiler special. My pleasure. Thank you very much. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.